Alright everyone, let's call a timeout. This podcast is proudly sponsored by MIPS, the indemnity partner of four out of five healthcare students. It's free to become a student member. For more information regarding MIPS student membership, please visit qr.mips.com.au. Our next guest for season two is orthopedic surgeon and world leading osseointegration expert, as well as author, human rights advocate, and medical educator, Professor Munjed Almaderis. Prof, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Aidan. Thanks for having me. I've mentioned only some of the litany of hats that you wear. For our listeners who might not know you, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit further and tell us a bit more about what you do? My name is Munjed Almaderis. Um, I have a few hats. First, I was born in Iraq. I am a refugee. I came to Australia on a leaky boat. So I'm a, a person seeking asylum or was seeking asylum. I'm also um, a squadron leader in the Australian Air Force Defense uh, Reserve. I'm a professor at Macquarie University and a professor at Notre Dame University and an honorary associate in Sydney University School of Engineering. So. Um, I do have few of these hats that are related to um, human rights, teaching, but my day-to-day work, which is um, involving basically arthroplasty, lower limb arthroplasty, and I have special passion about limb reconstruction surgery. So I had the discipline of complex limb reconstruction at Macquarie University, And as part of that discipline is um, the innovative technology of uh, OSI integration, targeted muscle re-innovation, and dealing with amputees and and people who have lost limbs or uh, have had serious disability due to one reason or another. And that goes from congenital to post-trauma. As you mentioned, there's there's a lot um, that, that you cover there. We're really looking forward to chatting about a bit of those things you're obviously a busy man and we're very lucky to catch you where you and i are actually chatting on the weekend so we're especially grateful for your time apart from pleasure to be here yeah it is is great to have you apart from chatting to medical students on podcasts what do you normally get up to on the weekend well basically the weekend is uh, is the time that i spare for after doing my rounds, because that's the only time I can do the rounds on, on the hospitals. And uh, after that, I spend time with the family. So um, I have a, a little daughter that is uh, seven months now, and I don't get to see her during the week because I leave when she just wake up and, and I come back when she's asleep. So that's the only time I get to see her. Fair enough. So Prof, what are you listening to or reading at the moment? Is there anything you'd recommend for our listeners? I'm a bit odd from that point of view. I uh, I listen to classic music. I like cello music and I listen a fair bit to Mozart. And at the same time, I read about history. And that doesn't limit the reading to certain part of history. It goes from basically ancient uh, European history to recent 
history, because I strongly believe that history make our present and set up our future. And uh, unfortunately, we haven't learned from history. And uh, I wish that people could read more about it to, you know, set a better future for for all of us. Yeah, that's a, a great attitude to have. And I'm hoping that our listeners will be able to learn from your history and your story today. In regards to the music, do you get the choice in the operating theatre uh, for, for the music playlist? Yeah, I mean, that that is very territorial. And a lot of the time we enter fights because, uh, you know, when you work in theatre, you work with different generations. You work with sometimes older anaesthetists that uh, want to put the 80s and, uh, and you work with younger uh, nurses that want to put some stuff that scratch it to your ears and then at home I listen to three little pigs uh, so sometimes I miss that so um, I'm the lower denominator in this case um, so I don't get to choose sometimes I sneak one or two two cellos or um, or Lindsay uh, Sterling few musicals I don't particularly enjoy listening to songs I'm more like listening to music uh, I feel that, um, and, but that's my my personal opinion. Uh, I feel that human beings um, destroy the music with their voices. How much are the instruments? There you go. That's that's very interesting. We're interested in in surgery here at the podcast, and I'm really uh, looking forward to having a chat to you about your own <coughs> surgical work. But if you had to do one profession outside of surgery, what do you think you'd be, and why? I think what I would do is uh, landscape gardening. It's not something that I've done, but I'm very passionate about nature and watching things grow in front of you. And um, especially if you can design it in a way, that would be something that I would be doing. And I think that's what I'm going to do when I retire. Good plan. So Prof, I'd like to start exploring your life story through Munjed the Young Boy. Tell us a little bit about growing up in Iraq. Look, um, Iraq uh, was a secular country under a dictatorship. I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. And from the moment I started realizing my surrounding, there is no day that passed without hearing a bomb explosion or an air raid. Um, but you get to um, live in such an environment and you get used to it. It's part of your uh, the day-to-day events, but you do your own uh, stuff. And uh, Baghdad was very cosmopolitan city, was pretty much like Sydney. We did have fireworks. They were similar to the Sydney fireworks. The only difference, they were real planes shot by real missiles, but we still used to go out and watch them and uh, get excited. And then most of the time you're safe uh, unless they fall on your head. My house got shot twice uh, with bullets, but, uh, you know, it becomes not so special. So so you get toughened from young age. I was a spoiled brat with a a silver spoon in my mouth, and um, I grew up to a very well-off family. But I've learned to live among people who have different kind of views of life. Uh, My father was very wise, very stable, very uh, measured person. My mum was very emotional and uh, very traditional kind of teacher with authority and one thing's done her own way. 
and you get to see both interact um, and then you build up your own personality. So I remember my first lesson about life was um, father teaching me how to learn about failure. And um, I was the age of four uh, when I decided that I didn't like the color of my uh, room. So I started painting the wall with crayons they were green uh, sorry they were uh, brown crayons and so knowing that my mum will punish me so I started painting behind the uh, the door and then she discovered that very quickly and she pulled me from my ear uh, to my dad and, um, and you know about to be punished and my father and my uncle said to her well wait let's see what what he's doing and and they said what are you doing and I said well, I'm trying to uh, paint the wall. I don't like the blue color. And they said, okay, well, give him some more crayons. Let's see what he's going to do. And then uh, he gave me the opportunity uh, to learn about failure and to learn about preparing for any kind of task. And that was the first lesson I learned in my life. Then you go to school and the first lesson about religion uh, was from our teacher and uh, we heard the story about Abraham binding Ishmael in Islam and Isaac in Christianity and went back to my father and again telling him what I what I learned and from my teacher and how amazing that Abraham was so passionate about his religion about his faith that he wanted to sacrifice his son because God told him to and to my shock the response that I got from my father was that you need to judge about what uh, you hear and not everything you hear uh, you should follow because um, if every man have a bad dream wake up and try to kill their son there will be not many people around and that opened my eyes to question everything the lesson that I learned is that whatever you, you hear whatever you read in books if it doesn't make sense you should question it and you shouldn't take things as uh, you've been told which kind of made me think about things and um, and question every evidence in front of me, despite that it is written in a holy book. And then I grew up and I learned how to make my first bomb uh, at the age of 12, growing up in a <laughs> in the Middle East. And again, uh, we made the, the, this chemical bomb in the kitchen and uh, prematurely exploded. Uh, with my cousin and the whole um, house was filled with chlorine gas and um, we had to vacate the uh, the house for for two weeks until um, it was cleared and um, and the painters had to paint the walls and the kitchen again or the roof actually because the walls were made up they didn't call you in to do the painting did they this time (laughs) (laughs) so there you go so it was it was very um Uh, kind of interesting childhood we didn't have ipads we didn't have uh, computers and it saddens me to see how i grew up and how my children are growing up because they stuck to their phones and they stuck to their ipads and they don't see anything uh, outside that i was making money as early as i was nine or or ten i was selling you know kites making kites and selling them to uh, to kids around and then we we had these cat kite fights and my kites were always winning because I cheated. I used to um, break the uh, light bulbs glass and mix it with glue and the threads of the kites, I run them through it. So, so I don't know if, if you're from a different generation, if you've ever heard about kite fighting and uh, you know, you fight kites and, and you know, you cut the other kites threads and, um, and, and you win. So, um, 
so there you go. So we had an exciting uh, childhood, and I'm, I'm, I enjoyed it all. But then, you know, uh, living in a in an environment where uh, there are wars, and and among all of that, you know, you are the threat of being bombed and being killed, and 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 people were dying in thousands at the same time. Yeah, I can imagine you were just exposed to so much as as a young kid and. I think they're two really fascinating lessons that you mentioned about failure and about questioning everything. And I think both of them are, are really important things for, for medical students and, and doctors to have with them in, in their life and in, the, in their career. So thanks for sharing them. I'm interested about the influence that your family had on you. Um, tell us a bit about what they did. Um, were, were there medical people in your family that influenced you towards that direction? Well, my family come from two separate and two different, uh, in, in Iraq back in the days, it was a very class kind of society. My father's family were kind of aristocratic family and um, my father was the head of the Supreme Court and he was a chief judge and my uncle was head of the parliament and, um, and he was a prime minister at some stage. Well, my mum come from a working class family so my father's side were half doctors, half lawyers, judges, parliamentarians, and my mother's side, uh, where basically her grandfather was uh, the the first General Motors dealer in, in in Iraq, and then he died. So she had to quit her law degree and become a teacher so she can raise her siblings and take them through university. So, uh, so she worked hard for earning a living. So... It's a big contrast between the two. And I had the benefit of experiencing both sides. And uh, uh, my mum's side, where majority of them are, were artistics. My uncle became a very famous sculptor and, um, and the whole family are into painting and art and music. While my father's side were more into literature and um, medicine and, and law. So um, growing in this kind of environment, um, made me have the exposure to both, see the benefits and the disadvantages of both sides. And um, I must admit, my father was not so keen on um, pushing me toward one way uh, or another. I mean, he, my father never asked me uh, about what I wanted to do and never never directed me to any, uh, any path. While my mum was very strict and you have to be a doctor, you have to be if you can't be a doctor, you have to be an engineer and you have to be this. And uh, while my father was called completely democratic, if we say it, and he gave me the, the opportunity to explore what I want to do. He never pushed me against smoking or drinking alcohol or, uh, you know, um, doing anything in, in my life. And, and But he showed me what are the advantages and disadvantages of anything. So what about for yourself with, with that kind of attitude towards now having your own children, you know, maybe one day if they think about going into medicine, how do you think you'll approach that? Well, I have my older son want to do medicine. He's doing medical science at the moment and uh, he, he didn't get the marks to get him undergrad, but I mean, I'm not pushing him in any way. Um, oh, my younger son is doing law degree, but they chose their own path and um, i don't have much influence to be honest i mean nowadays we don't have much influence on our kids like the way our families did but i rather use my father's attitude and my father's approach 
toward my children, that doesn't mean that my father's approach was better than my mum's. In terms of your own interest in medicine and um, even in the more specific field that you've ended up going into, I understand there was a particular interest in a, a rather seminal Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so at the age of 12, I was watching this Hollywood movie about Arnold's Terminator and um, and you get experience in life and you get exposed to certain events and sometimes you see through it something that other people may not see. I didn't look at the movie in, in the same way that everybody was seeing. Um, what, what fascinated me is the technology and seeing... Uh, and being exposed to um, war-torn victims with significant amount of disability and amputations, I found in that movie a solution for these people. So um, I was fascinated about how a mind control robotic arm can can function. And, um, and that's why I wanted to do reconstructive surgery. I went to my father, basically, and I said, this is amazing. I would like to do that. And his cousin was uh, the head of the re- limb reconstruction unit in in Baghdad and um, he said okay well I'll I'll call him for you and he took me to his theater basically and uh, interestingly enough it was at the same time where the first case I was exposed to was a hand transplant uh, or hand re-implant a re-implantation it was a, a person that lost his arm in a in a harvester one of these big machineries and um, his the the harvester chopped off his hand and they managed to retrieve it and he put the hand back and I followed that patient basically and it was fascinating so I wanted to uh, plastic surgery and then I realized that uh, with all due respect majority of that end up in cosmetics rather than limb reconstruction so then I changed my mind into doing limb reconstruction and through orthopedics rather than plastics. No, I don't have anything against plastic surgeons, but... Uh... No, fair enough. Uh, that's really interesting to hear how you went through that process of kind of imagining the end goal and then taking a step back and just ticking off the steps to, to work towards that. Yeah, but I, I pretty much was very determined from early times that I want to do reconstructive surgery. So, which is kind of strange because uh, the vast, vast majority of medical students that come through the training with us I make sure that I ask them what do you want to do and uh, and the vast vast majority say I haven't decided yet things have changed and um, and people have different approaches and it's in one way it's good to have the exposure to everything and then make up your mind rather than be fixated on one thing at a time and I tell you what I mean for sure I think I was focused on what I wanted to do but I was absolutely hopeless in everything else. So I was a terrible medical student. I was a terrible doctor throughout the training because I had no knowledge, no idea about anything else. So there you go. So, so what would your advice be then for those medical students, junior doctors who maybe have an idea of what they want to do or maybe have absolutely no idea of what they want to do and maybe worried about picking something and trying not to leave it too late? I think my advice would be to choose what you enjoy because you're going to be stuck with what you do, what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And it's too late that you go through a path and then you decide that, oh, this is not what I want to do and I don't enjoy it. Um, And I tell you, 
something frankly i do a very large volume of hip and knee replacements and it's boring like bad shit and i hate it and because i mean there's nothing worse than doing a knee replacement it's just boring okay but unfortunately limb reconstruction surgery doesn't bring you enough income it is as much as it's fun as much as it's creative as much as you see the uh, effect on others and how you change people's lives there's no there's no money in it because people are usually either post traumatic or congenital deformities or post infective and usually you do majority of the work for them almost pro bono while with hip and knee replacement it's very it pay the bills um, so you need to have a balance in your life the reality is that you need to earn living you need to feed your family and at the same time you need to enjoy what you're doing and unfortunately sometimes what's enjoyable doesn't pay off okay so you have to balance it you have to do uh, both and i think i'm not i'm not whinging about it but uh, it's just there is no creativity I, i get bored very quickly there is no creativity in doing the the standard uh, work and i and that's why i do what i do and before covid I used to travel a lot overseas because Australia I have to say this guys you live in a tiny country Australia is a drop in a massive ocean and if you set your mind that way and this is if I can give you one advice as medical students think big and the world is million times bigger than Australia don't think down to your city don't think down to your state or your country if you have ambition and you want to make a difference you need to think globally and you need to think uh, about the rest of the world i mean there is nothing wrong with the um, with working in a in a small town and have a farm and and enjoying your life that's one one way and one path and i could have chosen that path um, and you can live very comfortable life a lot of people when they are growing and they want to make a difference and they want to change the world and unfortunately if you if you think that way then you have to think big uh, and you have to think globally because if you think that you achieved you know changing the world and we have a lot of these kind of examples that they that people that think that they are the ants pants uh, but they live in a tiny uh, you know sydney or melbourne and it's tiny compared to the rest of the world i'm not saying that australia is too small but australia is too small <laughs> no that's that's really interesting to hear and um yeah your, your your reflections on work and and surgery are really refreshing to hear as well so that's that's quite fascinating to kind of as you say get the balance you wanted me to be something... not politically correct no exactly <laughs> I, i love it as it is that, yeah, the that, problem is i mean that that's why i go to you know i go and work in um in developing countries such as the middle east southeast asia and uh, you know i haven't been to i've been to africa but south africa is not regarded as as africa south africa is a british colony um uh, so haven't seen the true africa but this is um, this is exciting because you can make a hell of a difference for these people and then at the same time you work in developed countries and you can make a hell of a difference like um, especially when you work in the field Um, that is is making a difference and uh, like working in Europe or Canada 
and I'm sorry, and America is a developing country. So, um, <laughs> if, you know, when you work in America as well, you can see that the, the problem with America is a bit challenging because um, they have this delusion of grandiose and they think that they are developed, but they are still way behind the rest of the world. And, um, and you face this kind of more exciting and uh, excitement and challenge about, about how to deal with these people. But anyway, that's a different story. Mm. So um, we've heard a little bit about your, your medical student years. Tell us about then becoming a junior doctor. You stayed in Iraq, I believe. What, what was that experience like? Look, um, uh, it was a very small uh, snapshot of my life experience. And it was very, very limited period because I was, um, I was a very junior doctor and um, the wars were raging back then. And Iraq was under a, an international embargo. So we used to save cannulas. We used to save syringes and needles in our lockers because, you know, the supply was very limited. And I remember very well that the level of experience that you have in an emergency department when you're a junior doctor, where you get a flux of 10, 20 people with mixed kind of injuries from wound lacerations due to shrapnels to, uh, you know, someone who got drunk um, and smashed a glass on their hand and you have to treat them all because you can't discriminate. Okay. Or someone who's, uh, who's a pilot that's uh, stupidly uh, decided to make, uh, to wash his leather jacket in a, in a closed um, uh, bathroom with the electric heater on uh, using a, uh, cure, uh, gasoline, uh, like, uh, and then everything goes into flames and come up with 80% burn. You see that I can, you know, I have this, uh, you know, vivid pictures of these people walking to my emergency. And then, and then, you, you know, you face his family and you say, this guy has 80% burn, he's going to die in the morning. And he's because of the adrenaline rush, he's fully awake. And his family look at you and they say, what the hell are you talking about? He's, he's talking to us. He's normal. Okay. And, uh, and then they pull their guns and put it in your head and say, you better keep him alive. And it's something that you would never experienced in, in, in Australia, but that wow. was our day-to-day -day living. So you try to perform medicine, do your best for the these people with the scantiest resources and you get mixture of massive pathologies that you have to deal with with very limited experience the sutures we used to use it and then put it in a in a pot of alcohol and then use it again for the next patient and so on um it makes you have a different perspective about life about medicine about how to deal with things. And, and I must admit, uh, I was very lucky to be put in that situation because it made me a much stronger person and gave me the opportunity when you, when you function and manage to perform your duty in this kind of environment, um, when you get you know, transported to a first world setting where you have everything at your disposal, uh, then you look at what you're doing and you think, what the hell am I doing here? Because, uh, you know, this is different. That's the, the experience that I had in Yeah, that's, uh, I can't, in, I can't believe Iraq. that. And, and I understand there was 
kind of one extremely vivid experience that that really changed the course of your life in, in that war and while you were working as a junior doctor yeah i mean the, the moment that the changing moment was uh, when you know i was confronted with three busloads of army deserters escorted by republican guards and um, and bath party members and they ordered us to abandon the elective list and start mutilating these army deserters by chopping their ears off so the head of the department came out and says, no, I'm not doing that. This is against the Hippocratic Oath. Do not do no harm. And um, basically they dragged him outside. They put a bullet in his head in front of everybody. And then they came to us and they said, well, anyone share this man's view, come forward. Otherwise proceed with our orders. So I had to face the most challenging decision in my life. Should I obey the commands and live with guilt for the rest of my life? Should I refuse and end up with a bullet in my head or should I run away? And I decided to escape. So I had to hide in the female toilet for five hours. They felt like five years. And mm -hmm. then from there onward, I, my life changed upside down from a spoiled brat, you know, living comfortably in such an environment. And, and believe me, life was full uh, back then. So I never wanted to leave Iraq because, you know, you have family, you have neighbors, you have friends, you do your best to stay alive every day. But it was a full life. And then to change that to become someone who's running away from the law, hiding um, and trying to stay uh, alive because the um, police might come and, and arrest you and take you to the gallows, basically. So um, my family helped me to escape and, uh, and then they smuggled me outside Iraq and then from there, I went to Malaysia trying to find a future. And then I ended up on a leaky boat to Australia and spent almost a year in detention center called 982. And then I was released eventually with a temporary protection visa. Then I started my life again here, uh, started from scratch basically. But um, I think, uh, I think the experience that we have in Australia, I mean, we are very well looked after here and we are very lucky to be living in Australia. And if I may say something, I think it's very important that people would have an experience of travel and being exposed to the rest of the world. And you can see both sides and travel will shape people, even if it's a, a small snap of your life and, and short period. And as medical students, uh, you still have time to do it. So I really encourage you to, to take an opportunity. And I mean, now it's COVID, but um, uh, when COVID ends, it is important to, to see the rest of the world and go to, uh, to areas where you can open your mind and and open your horizon about what you want to do. And it may make you decide what to do. That's really good advice. Um, I'm sure no one would kind of desire to have as, as horrific a, a story and journey as you've had, but it's really fascinating to learn from it. I'm interested in the role of medicine in your life throughout that journey. Uh, when you weren't practicing medicine, when you were in detention, did you always think you would return to medicine? Did, did, did that kind of help you get through? Well, yeah, look, I mean, I, I am very set in the way I'm designed and, um, and, you know, 
I can be very functional and very useful in what I know. And, and that's limited to the field of my expertise and field of medicine. So I'll be useless uh, in doing other stuff. Having said that, I mean, my first job in Australia was a toilet cleaner. I, I started cleaning toilets when, when, when I first came to Australia and there was nothing wrong with that. I didn't know that I did a good job or a bad job because I don't know how, um, I don't have the experience. In, in how that. did you feel doing but, that after being a doctor? What was that? Uh, like? Look, I mean, a job is a job. It's mm. like any other job. And if I have to, uh, if for one reason or another, I stop doing medicine and I have to do something else, then I don't mind doing it again. And that's the point is that I believe strongly that uh, as human beings, we have a wheel of fortune and our position on the wheel of fortune can go up and down. And, you know, one day you are useless doing nothing. And another day you are functional doing everything for your community, for the country and for, for the world. But that doesn't mean one job is better than the other. We all have functions and we all have duties in life. And um, as long as you are functional and as long as you're producing, what I have a very strong stand against is that people who are capable of working and choose not to and decide to live on others. That I have an issue with because uh, we exist here in this world to be functional. You know, of course, if you have an excuse, an illness or disability, then that's not a problem. But if you're physically capable, and I get, and you know, when you graduate as doctors, you will see a lot of compensable patients and, and you will see a lot of workers' compensation and people who, uh, are on disability pension, etc. And, you know, uh, I can give you examples. Uh, my last visit to Iraq, I had this guy who had uh, um, a hip disarticulation on one side, blind in one eye, one hand, one arm, um, and an arthrodes knee on the other leg, and severely stiff hip. And he worked as a baker, because he had to. <laughs> Okay, and he can only stand or lie down. He can't sit, but he's still working. Mm. Uh, but that's because the the situation forced him to work because otherwise he can't feed his family. What I don't, uh, so I have a lot of respect for this guy and this guy deserved to be looked after, you know. Uh, but what really upsets me is that I see patients here and they claim that they have because of their back pain, they can't work and they can't function and they, and they live on taxpayers' money. That's where I have an issue and I get very frustrated, unfortunately, with these people. But, you know, and that's why when we look at it, I don't think there is a perfect system uh, mm -hmm. because our system allowed that. I don't know how to solve these kind of problems. Mm -hmm. But in terms of your own work and perhaps something that, that the uh, medical students and junior doctors who are studying a lot might appreciate. I hear that you were, when you were in detention, you were able to somehow uh, get a textbook in um, to, to help you along. How did, how did you get that in? Well, 
uh, Last Anatomy was the only book that I had with me at the time when I, when the um, um, the three busloads of army deserters uh, arrived, and I kept it on me. And that was my only companion that I brought with me from Iraq. It came through the boat journey, and I still have it here. And that was the book that I had with me uh, in my position when we entered the detention center. And interestingly enough, the authorities took it away from me. And I had to go into a hunger strike to uh, get the book. And uh, they gave yeah. it to me eventually. Um, and, How long was that you know, for? Uh, well, five days of um, uh, no food, no, <laughs> no. And, um, uh, you know, it was it was a very interesting time, but uh, you know, trying to convince the authority that I need a book, mm. um, and in detention center, basically, the the life was completely different. It's just something it's unimaginable. You can't, uh, no matter how I describe it to you, I can't give you uh, a good picture. But um, it was very very medieval kind of um, uh, living circumstances and and treatment. And um, uh, I can give you a simple comparison. Uh, I spent 40 days in prison, including maximum security jail in Western Australia. And prison was absolutely fascinating. And it was like heaven. The prison system in Australia is absolutely superb. I strongly recommend it to everybody. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, the prison compared to the detention center was, uh, was absolutely fabulous. Uh, mm. we, we were treated like human beings. We were fed very well. I had change of clothes and um, um, I was called by my name rather than a number. And um, we had human rights while in the detention center, we stripped, we were stripped of all of that. What do you think that experience of the, you know, those two really dichotomous treatments that you got in Australia um, what influence did that, that then have on your own practice as a doctor and your own experience with patients? Look, I think, uh, I think uh, obviously, as I said to you, I was a spoiled brat in Iraq and never been, um, uh, you know, treated badly uh, throughout my, my life. And uh, until, you know, the, the first bad treatment I had was um, in Australia. And uh, it was an eye opener because um, no matter where you are um, uh, around the world, human beings can be cruel. Uh, to each other, uh, if they can get away with it. And that's why law and order is very important. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this country has very strong constitution, has very strong rights, uh, but we still have a long journey to get civil rights and the Bill of Rights. Australia is not a, a signatory to the Bill of Rights. That might surprise a lot of people. But if inside the detention center because Australian loans do not apply in the detention center. The company that was um, running the detention center could do whatever they want because it was completely excluded from the Australian system. And that was a very, very strong reminder for me that um, I have to be vigilant and, and always open my eyes uh, about, you know, fighting for human rights and fighting what's for what's right because it can happen to anyone it can happen anywhere and um you know you see what happened with them um, in in many countries in france in america where there is no law and order people go back to the jungle 
rule. And civilized society takes very long time to develop. And I've seen it with my own eyes. When there is no system, when there is no law and order, things can become very chaotic. And very quickly, people can go back to their natural basic instincts. And um, we become carnivores and try to eat each other. Not literally, but um, people would do anything to fight for survival and dominate. And it's a very scary thing. I mean, this is not the subject of this <laughs> of this podcast, but from my experience of what, what I'm seeing, it, it can flip very quickly. You can see the experience of George Floyd and what happened in mm. America. Uh, things can become, can turn ugly very quickly, very, very quickly. Mm. Well, it's an interesting um, topic to bring up and um, actually a, a good segue in, into what I wanted to discuss next. You mentioned, you know, working as a cleaner and then obviously working very hard and eventually getting your registration as a doctor in Australia. I'm interested in chatting about discrimination in medicine and in Australia as a whole. Was that something that you faced because of your race and because of your refugee status? And if so, how did you deal with it? Look, I mean, I'm dealing with it on a daily basis. Uh, this is not something unusual. And you can see, I mean, if you look at it, let's take a simple example, sexism. Okay. So um, this is a surgical society that we're talking to. Yep. And if you look at it, the first introduction of a female into the Royal College of Surgeons uh, was, what, 22 years after the establishment of the Royal College of Surgeons. Royal College of Surgeons was established in 1925, if I'm correct. The first female introduction was 1947. As we stand today, there are 11% of surgeons that are females. 4% of orthopedic surgeons are female. Despite that, 55% or more of medical graduates are females. So there are many reasons for that, some of which are because females choose to do non-surgical fields, uh, but others uh, are because of the fact that uh, females have been significantly discriminated against. I think the first non-Anglo-Saxon surgeon was in the 80s. Don't quote me on that, but that's from what I, I haven't read that, mm. but I, that's what I've, what I've heard. But I know the facts about the females, and still there is discrimination against race, against ethnic background, against religion, against sex. Human beings are tribal. Human beings, by nature, that's why people from the same city, Manchester United, supporters um, beat Manchester City supporters if Manchester City win the game and they can have serious injuries. That is the problem. As individuals, unfortunately, we are insecure. And as individuals, we always try to belong to something. Okay. And the only thing that can make us rise above this kind of primitive instinct is education. So the more we are educated, and I'm not talking about education in medicine, I'm talking about education in knowledge, in life, in history, in all aspects of our living, 
that's when we rise above these basic instincts. So I can tell you from my personal experience, and I climbed the ladder very quickly and uh, um, I was accepted to the training program very early in, in, in my career in Australia. I didn't lose much. And I was the same age of my equivalent Australian born, Australian graduates when I got into the orthopedic training program. And you know, orthopedics is one of the most competitive um, fields. And I thought everything is rosy until that moment in my welcome dinner, to my face, two of my peer that joined the training program said it that, isn't it a shame that the orthopedic training program standards had dropped so low to allow a refugee to be one of us. That was said to me, to my face. Um, mm. So these people that I'm mentioning, one of them works like six kilometers away from my hospital. But people have this kind of behavior, have this kind of attitude because they don't have enough education about what this can cause to other people. And unfortunately, I mean, if we just follow... Um, I'm an atheist, I'm not religious, but if, if people follow the basic principles about what they read in their Bible, okay, you know, you don't do things to others that you wouldn't do to yourself and treat people the way you want to be treated. But unfortunately, it is a human nature. Mm. I really like the notion of, of education, kind of life experience and, and people education to try and uh, maybe combat some of these major issues, particularly in surgery, I'm interested, do you have any practical advice for, you know, a lot of our listeners, the, the junior doctors and the medical students who are going to shape that next generation of surgery? How can we make it more inclusive and, and more representative of the society that we serve? Look, I think we are very lucky to live in this country because uh, we are very multicultural. We face different kind of patients with different ethnicity, different backgrounds, and we will, we, we, we're facing different kind of colleagues, peer and seniors and juniors. And if we just try to rise above the color and think that physically, when you cut everyone's skin, they bleed red blood, then we would do better in our life. I am very aware that people behave based on the influence of their background, based on the influence of their ethnicity, based on the influence of, the, uh, of their culture. And that's why uh, it's very important at the same time when you treat patients, you take that into consideration. Because a lot of the time, if you treat an Arab patient the same way you treat an Anglo-Saxon patient, the same way you treat a Japanese patient, you would discriminate against them because there is difference between these three patients. One patient comes from a very emotional society. One patient comes from more pragmatic society. And one patient comes from a very obedient society. And their behavior and their reaction toward your insult by doing surgery on them will be different because you are inflicting harm on them in the early stages when you do surgery on them. 
because you're causing them trauma and their recovery from that trauma will be different. Some will need more uh, sympathy and attention. Some will need more clearer direction because they're used to being told of what they require to do. Otherwise, you will leave them in limbo, okay? Mm. And, and it may sound very racist, but it is factual mm. because we are not the same. We are the same in the fact that we all deserve to be treated equally, but we are not the same in the way we react toward trauma. I had my flu shot with my partner who's an Anglo-Saxon and I nearly died, <laughs> okay? And she was completely normal. That's the way it is, you know? I yeah, required yeah. a lot of attention. <laughs> and she was caring for me while she had the injection at the same time as I had it. <laughs> That's funny. No, I, I really do, you know, like that. I think that kind of comes down to that patient-centered care that, that we do hear about and... Um, I suppose, yeah, understanding that that commonality that you say that everyone's the same, that everyone deserves that respect, but then, um, you know, at times you need to, to go beyond that to provide specific care. So in terms of your own surgical work, I really want to hear about um, osseointegration. Can you tell us a little bit about what it involves and why is it so much better than its predecessor? I can't claim that it's better. It's different. <laughs> it's, uh, so when amputee requires rehabilitation, they lost part of their body that it's mechanical. And the technology that existed before OSI integration uh, was invented in 1925 by Andreas Bave, who's a naval surgeon in the French Navy. And basically it's putting a bucket around the residuum and allowing them to walk with it. This has significant advantages that allowed the patient to walk again, I'm talking about lower limb amputees, obviously, but it has a lot of pitfalls. One of which is that the interface between the prosthesis and the body has to be through soft tissue. So there is an interaction between a hard object, which is the socket and the soft tissue, which is the skin and the flesh that should be operated by the movement of the bone inside. And that will create all sorts of problems, friction, blistering, chafing, heat, infections. At the same time, that energy, a lot of it is lost due to the mobility and fit. And especially that human beings as living beings in the morning, your size is different to the size of the body at night because we swell up as the day go by. And then, and especially when you are in a wrecked position, the fluid goes down and because of the amputation, you don't have any lymphatic drainage. So the stump become bigger. So a socket that doesn't change in size in the morning, it's loose at night. When you take it off, you can't put it back on. And then the third problem is the lack of proprioception because when you lose a limb, you, look the, you lose the feedback of the ground. And these people, when they walk, they're like walking on a hover mat. 
so they can't feel the ground. So these are the pitfalls of this technology. So Aussie integration kind of revolutionized all of that and solve all of these problems in one hit. And it is a directly skeletally attached titanium implant into the core of the bone, similar to what you would have in your own leg and percutaneously through a small hole connecting it to a prosthetic limb. Um, when it comes to added technologies that we are developing, uh, we are hooking now the nerves into the prosthesis and allowing the human to mind control a prosthetic limb. It's more applicable in the arm. We are doing it in lower limbs now, especially with uh, the development of flexors and extensors muscles and hooking it to the prosthesis and allowing the patient to operate the prosthetic limb mind control. So um, it is a completely radical change in philosophy and of the system uh, from basically an, a, a bucket that encased the residuum to something that restored the mechanical uh, alignment of the leg. At the same time, I have two hats as, a, as an orthopedic surgeon. One hat is an arthroplasty surgeon, which what we learn through our training that sterility is paramount. You know, if you have a leaking wound, you have to wash the wound. You have to be completely clean. And, you know, any infected, uh, if, if an infection occurs and this um, prosthesis has to come out, has to be replaced, and you have to have a period of, um, you know, uh, healing where there is no implant. Implant, when it's inside the bone, if it gets infected, has to be removed. That's one hat of an arthroplasty surgeon. And I have to take that hat off when I'm doing OC integration because OC integration surgery uh, or uh, transcutaneous implanting uh, prosthesis uh, violate every single principle that you learn in orthopedic surgery. And that's where we had the great antagonism and skepticism from our society. When I first started doing this 11 or 12 years ago, I was faced with laughter from my peer because they thought that it's amusing uh, that this kind, of, this kind of thing, you know, done. And then when I've done the first 10, I presented them in, in our uh, national meeting and I had two of my bosses came to me after my talk, shaking my hand. One of them said, I knew that you're odd and you would do something different. Uh, good on you. And that's how the wheel of evolution of medicine happens and, mm. um, uh, and keep going. And the other ones said, and make sure that uh, uh, you send me a message naming the, the 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 prison and the and the cell that you're in so i can send you flowers when you go to jail so you have these two views of um, wow. um a boss who would encourage you to you know progress and a boss who is very traditional and very pragmatic like um, dogmatic with um, that the wheel of um, evolution should not move anymore 
And unfortunately, in Australia, we have this problem that we think that we are not capable of um, advancing medicine for some reason. Okay, despite that Australia for its tiny size, we have um, uh, made significant breakthroughs in medicine, such as the, you know, the Helicobacter pylori discovery and the Nobel Prize and, uh, and other advancement with cochlear implants and things like that. And interestingly enough, every single one of these pioneers I've spoken to, okay, and I've given lectures with, and they all share the same experience of criticism, skepticism, laughter, and then antagonism uh, until they got to the Nobel Prize uh, and then people shut up, okay? <laughs> uh, but the journey is not that easy. If you put your neck out there, you become a tall poppy and it will be chopped off. Mm. So, you know, and the problem is the way we are trained, and I'm sure you will hear this, you always get told fly under the radar, uh, don't ruffle any feathers and go by the book, okay? With all due respect, the book that's you, that, that you're reading have been printed 20 years ago, okay? And time has passed uh, since. So uh, any material that you read in the book, apart from the basics, uh, are old. Mm. No, that's a, a great lesson about being a rebel and being a bit different and, you know, the amazing discoveries and achievements that that, that can lead to. Um, so it's really great to hear that. You need to be careful not to harm people. Of course. So, so when you embark on, if you have an idea and you want to implement it, you need to surround yourself with enough evidence good knowledge, educate yourself as much as possible, and then build a team around you. And then you can practice calculated risk, but as long as it's calculated and as long as it's done um, in, a, in a systematic way that you can uh, basically minimize the risk and minimize the harm. Um, and, you know, the Wright brothers, when they first took off with their plane, they didn't know if they're going to crash. So you have to, you have to take a risk when you, when you're doing something. Uh, but uh, until that moment, uh, you know, uh, you have to take all the measures to calculate all the possibilities, and and limit it to the narrow possible risk uh, that you would you would be facing. Having said that, there is nothing wrong with flying under the radar. There is nothing wrong with doing a day-to-day -day work and uh, you know, doing a decent job, providing a service for a community and, and then go and spend time with um, uh, your family or play rugby or, or enjoy whatever you like to enjoy. It's a choice. I am um, very conscious that our time is going so quickly that there is one more story that I want to ask about before we finish up, Prof, because for me, it really summarizes your devotion to your patients and to your work. It's about when you return, you were asked to return to Iraq, and uh, I believe you, you met some politicians that were fairly high up in Iraq, 
um, or you were asked to meet them while you were with some patients. Tell us about that story. I was basically one day on going to Cafe Sydney and I had a group of visitors uh, from overseas. The phone rang in the car and uh, this guy spoke in Arabic and he said, are you Munjid? Are you Munjid? And I said, yes, it's Munjid. And he was rude because he didn't introduce his, himself or anything. So I said, who are you? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm the um, Iraqi ambassador in Switzerland and I used to be the Iraqi ambassador in Sydney and I have your number. And um, I was asked to call you because the Iraqi prime minister want to speak to you in half an hour and uh, you're available. I said, okay, what for? <laughs> and, uh, and then the phone call happened and then I was invited to go back to um, uh, help out. So um, within a month, I was on a plane uh, back to Baghdad. We went back, uh, was with Claudia, my partner, and um, uh, back then my personal assistant and um, going with with two girls a blonde and a brunette um, into a place that it's run by ayatollahs and um, as the plane was landing i thought what the hell have i done to myself what are we gonna face when the door open of this plane and as the door opened uh, okay a um, bunch of people uh, were standing on the bridge uh, on the air bridge with suits and and ties and and they straight away introduced themselves and they said please come with us this way and we didn't go through the air bridge but we went down the stairs and there were black limos waiting for us and uh, they took us to the presidential reception area and uh, they took out passports and uh, basically uh, from there took us to the to a palace and we stayed there overnight and then in the morning they took us to the hospital and initially we were told that we're going to see maybe 20 patients and then we discovered by early morning that there were 95 patients waiting for us and we started seeing these patients and in the middle of the clinic another group of suited men came and they said we need to leave and i said where are we going and they said the prime minister I want to meet you so we interrupted the clinic and i said well i'm going to you know leave this clinic and they said we'll be back in in, in an hour and we went there and the prime minister was there and um, and then we sat for a few minutes and and he said well i need you to come back and and help these people we we will do whatever it takes i said okay well i'll just check these people and, um, and then we decide what to do and um, and then from there onward basically uh, we started running shuttle visits to Iraq every three months or four months. Um, we've done eight trips since. Unfortunately, COVID hindered that because I couldn't go since COVID started. But we have treated large number of patients. We started going there and uh, the first trip, it was like a zoo. The status of the hospital and the status of the staff and the uh, hygiene and the there was no system, basically. It was an absolute disaster. People didn't know how to scrub. They didn't have equipment. And then gradually, with time, we discovered that they have everything. They have money. They have equipment. But it's just chaotic because nobody give a shit about the place. And we started implementing systems in place. And the last trip, they were working like as if I'm working in my private hospital 
in Macquarie University in Sydney. Uh, so we got the standards up and we started performing some really good work. And every trip I bring a new team from the UK, from America and uh, other places with me. I brought even uh, one of my fellows from Israel. And uh, interestingly enough, he arrived the day after me as he was, uh, he has an American passport. So on the way from the airport to the, to the residential area, the, um, the security, uh, the secret service guy turned back and he said, um, Dr. Rosenblatt, um, so you are Jewish, aren't you? And he said, "Uh oh, am I in trouble? And, uh, and he said to him, no, we just need to know if you have any dietary restrictions so we can oh. organize. Uh, <laughs> uh, do, you, do you have to eat kosher meals or shall we feed you normal food? And um, so they know everything, obviously, uh, from the security point of view, they are aware of things. So, um, yeah, and it was fun. Uh, we met the Ayatollah, the, and, and funny enough, when I met him, uh, he started praying for me and all that stuff. And I said, just to be clear, uh, your eminence, uh, I don't follow any religion. And, uh, and the room was quiet. And then I thought, oh, shit, did I overstep by uh, limit? And then he said, well, we are, if we are not brothers in religion, we're brothers in humanity. And I said, well, well said. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, we had some interesting experiences. And um, I mean, the whole aim is to um, treat as many people as we can, mm -hmm. lift the um, uh, standards. And uh, funny enough, um, you know, a lot of people ask me that because it's a, it's a, it's a massive country. It's twice the size of Australia and um, going to have any impact. And a wise man... Um, uh, responded by uh, from the Iraqi um, government, basically, and he said, we know that, uh, but the psychological impact that you have on the population by doing this is a multiplier of what your physical work is, uh, mm. because that gives people hope, mm -hmm. and hope is very important for people, basically. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating to hear about, and Really, all of the lessons that you've shared with us today, Prof, um, ha have been really fantastic from learning about failure and questioning everything um, to, to the hard work and, and your journey um, from, from Iraq to Australia. I'm wondering if you have one last piece of advice for all of our listeners today uh, that, that you can leave us with um, to, to take on our, our journeys throughout our medical and surgical careers. Look, if I, if I may say one thing, is that um, uh, life is too short. Live it to the full. Enjoy it. Enjoy what you do and leave an impact behind you um, that is positive on people, on your family, on the society, and on the world. Um, and if you don't want to leave anything, Try not to leave any harm. No one is above no one. And the person beside you in the next car, they don't know if you're a doctor or if you're a toilet cleaner. We're all equal. That's a great note to finish on, Prof. Thank you so much for your time today. And, and thanks for all the lessons you've shared about your life. 
I'm sure that all of our listeners um, will learn lots from it, just as I have. Thanks so much and all the best. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Time Out, brought to you by Aidan, Ganisht, Chloe and Noreen. We'd love to hear from you if you're enjoying our interviews or have any ideas for the show on Facebook and Twitter at TTO Podcast and on Instagram at TTO Podcast SSSM. Don't forget to subscribe to The Timeout on Spotify or Apple Podcasts as well. Finally, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support.